As we come now to read from God's Word, we're involved no less in an act of worship than when we were singing together. We, instead of confessing our love for God and His splendor and majesty, uh, we now come and hear from God what He has to say to us that we might go and be transformed by this uh, and live in light of it through the course of the rest of this week. And so we continue in our series in Romans, picking up in Romans chapter 3, and this morning we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 20. And there we read, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Equality for all is something that we hear a lot about at the moment. It's something that we read a lot about in Scripture. But actually what we read in Scripture isn't perhaps the same as what we're talking about in our culture. Christians have been at the forefront of the call for many decades, in fact centuries, for equality in society. And what we've meant by that has been, more often than not, that everyone should be afforded the same opportunities in life. That it's not right because of the color of your skin or because of your wealth or because of your gender or your age that you should be given um, better opportunities in life than others. We should be afforded the same opportunities, the same chances to go and do well in life, regardless of who we are or what we look like or where we come from. The view of our world today seems to be that all people should actually be the same, that there shouldn't be wealthy or poor, 
that, that everyone should have exactly the same amount of money, that everybody should have the same level of education, that everybody should have the same sort of house, that there shouldn't be any differences or distinct, uh, distinctions between any people anywhere. And this seems very strange, not least of all because it completely flies in the face of all our experience. It's not possible, is it? And as we hear about the call for equality, The danger for us as Christians is that we can mean one thing but be caught up in a call for something entirely different. As we come to uh, God's Word and as we come to Romans chapter 3, we find Paul saying in this chapter that we are all equal. It doesn't matter what we think about this world. That as we stand before God, we all stand on a level playing field. And this is not just um, an interesting fact. This is truly good news. That there is no one who stands higher or lower, no one who is better off or worse off. We are all afforded a, a level playing field before God. But in contrast to what we hear today, I don't think we actually want to stand on a level playing field. I think we say that we do. We want everyone to be equal. But actually, when we look at ourselves at the heart, none of us really do want that. And we'll go and explore that as we work our way through this particular uh, passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. What we find in this uh, section is in verses 1 to 4, Paul telling us that God holds us all to the same standard. Paul has spent the last two chapters making sure we understand that both Jews and Gentiles stand before a holy, a perfectly righteous, a perfectly upright, just God. And we will all be expected to give an account of ourselves to this perfect, just God. And God won't show favoritism to anyone. It doesn't matter what culture you're from, what your background is, whether you're male or female, young or old, uh, wealthy or poor, it doesn't matter. You will all be called to account before God. All sin, that is all the breaking of God's standard, of God's law, will be judged on a level playing field. And if you are guilty, you will be judged and condemned And if you are innocent, you will be judged and rewarded. But Paul has made it clear in chapters 1 and 2 that everyone is guilty. There is no one who gets to escape that verdict as they stand before God. We are all in need of salvation. He's just said in chapter 2 that um, Jews who live in sin, who live as if they are uncircumcised Gentiles, are essentially uncircumcised Gentiles before God. And the uncircumcised Gentile who lives a holy and a righteous life before God is essentially the same as a circumcised Jew. There is almost no difference because they are living the kind of life that a faithful Jew ought to be living. And so Paul anticipates some counter-arguments to his position and says in the beginning of our passage, what advantage has the Jew? Is there any point in being Jewish at all then? Do the Jews rightly have a bit of a grievance here because they've been living under the law of God for centuries, for millennia? Was there no point in that? Were they just wasting their time? 
Was there any point in circumcising generations of boys? Was there any point in keeping the law and keeping kosher food laws and and so on? And Paul answers that question here. What advantage does the Jew have? Much. They were given the oracles of God, entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul says. God spoke to the Hebrew people, gave them his word, the law, the prophets, the writings, what they called the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament now, the Jewish scriptures. God revealed himself to them. And he didn't do it because they were an amazing people. They were better than anyone else. He did it because God chose them and chose to set his love upon them. And so he revealed himself to them in the expectation that they would be transformed and go and reveal God to the rest of the world, that it would be a light to the Gentile nations. They have had every advantage along the way, Paul says, because God made known to them their sin and what was required of them to flee from that sin, to be forgiven. God told them that they needed to cast themselves upon God's grace and mercy, and if they did, they would be forgiven. And in fact, if anyone in the world did, they could be forgiven. Paul says that there was much advantage to being a Jew, but that doesn't mean that the Jews were better than anyone else. They failed in so many ways, he said. They weren't faithful, And this is shown most of all in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah when he came. A problem that is still plaguing the church. As the church goes and testifies to Jewish people that their Messiah has come, they refuse to believe. And we find that Christians have come into the church, or people who call themselves Christians rather, have become a part of the church and yet continue to believe in the old ways and still don't fully accept Jesus as their Savior. And this is a problem Paul wants to draw to their attention so they deal with it. The accusation might be leveled. If Jesus has come, and the Jews don't believe in Jesus as their Savior, and God condemns them as sinners, is God being unfaithful to the whole old covenant, to all of the scriptures that have gone before that had said that they needed to make sacrifices in the temple, and they needed to keep the law, and if they did, if they cast themselves upon the grace of God, they would be redeemed. Is God being unfaithful by judging them? And Paul says, no, not in any way. The lack of faith, the faithlessness of Jews who reject Jesus as their Savior in no way reflects badly on God at all. God has been faithful in sending them a Savior in the person of Jesus. This is amazing faithfulness on the part of God that God in no way owed to these people. And yet he showed them this grace, this amazing mercy And they, in their faithlessness, have rejected the mercy of God. Paul says, by no means is God to be condemned for this. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul is saying here that the faithlessness of the Jews doesn't cancel out the faithfulness of God. He quotes King David. This is from Psalm 51, that that little quote um, in verse 4. And in quoting from this, he's drawing their attention to King David, the great exemplar in Jewish history of the man of God, the the, the man who, um, 
who, who God anointed and did so many great things with, was a sinner. And in his sin with Bathsheba, he confesses in Psalm 51 the sin of adultery and of murder and of all sorts of impropriety. David says that he would rightly be judged and condemned by God if God so cho- chose to do so. That David had sinned, and all sin must be condemned. It doesn't matter that David's the king. It doesn't matter that David's a Jew. It doesn't matter that David is the anointed servant of God for his people. He deserves to be judged, condemned, and condemned for his sin. God's justice applies to all impartially. And his judgment on sinners, David says, actually glorifies God because of his impartiality, because he is willing to see justice done regardless of who it is that he is administering that justice to. God is shown to be perfectly upright in a way that goes way beyond us. How many of us could show that level of impartiality? We always show favoritism to to our own, to our own family, to our own friends, our own circle, our own group. We always do. Not so with God. God shows complete fairness. He will judge all people, even the Jews, for their sin, because God is the same regardless of who we are. God holds us all to the same standard. And this is something that sounds good, but actually we don't like. We don't want to be judged according to one standard that is fit for all. We want something specific for us because there are always extenuating circumstances to my sin. There are always good reasons why I did the things I did. I said the things I said. There are always reasons why it's not that bad. And Paul says there will be none of that. And it's good for you that there is none of that for two reasons. One, it shows that God will perfectly deal with sin however he deals with it. And we'll come on to that in a moment. And so we never have need of any fear that if God says sin has been paid for, then it has surely been paid for. He hasn't masked over certain things, swept things under the rug, sort of winked at sin because you're part of my group, and so I'll sort of let that slide. We know when God declares someone righteous, they are truly righteous. And when God declares someone guilty, they are truly guilty. God reveals to us the full depth and depravity of our sin. He never sugarcoats it to to make it seem lesser because he knows us and he loves us and we're his kind of people. So that we might go through this life never worrying about sin because God sort of sugarcoated it for us. And we might be tripped up later on because it turns out mm, well, there is a standard that we have to live by. And we never did because we never saw the need to. No, none of that, Paul says. Let God be true if everyone else is a liar. If everyone in the world needs to stand, stand condemned before God because they're sinners, let it be so. Better that than a partial God who will deal with everyone differently and deal with sin differently on a whim because he chooses to in one case and not in another. True equality means we all must answer to the same standard, that we all stand on a level playing field, that we don't get to claim special circumstances for one and not another. 
that we are all held by God to account for our sin, but also when we are forgiven, when we cast ourselves on the grace and on the mercy of God for for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf when he dies on the cross and takes the full penalty of God's wrath upon himself, when God declares us righteous, we can know beyond any shadow of a doubt if God says I am righteous, then my sin is gone. It has been paid for and I am clean. This is an amazing reality that doesn't fit with the culture of our times and yet is the situation that Paul reveals we all stand in. We all have the same standard that we are held to by God. And Paul then goes on in verses 5 to 8 to make it clear that God sets this standard that we are all held to, not man not us. This is absolutely crucial to our understanding about life and about faith and salvation and God's wrath and his judgment and condemnation of sin. It is utterly central. Paul anticipates the next objection that we're going to make. If all we need to do is repent of our sin and cast ourselves on God's mercy because he's graciously opened our eyes to the reality of our sin and the need for forgiveness, is this fair for everyone else? For all those who aren't forgiven for their sin, who never realize that they've done anything wrong. How can that be fair? And how is it fair that there are some Jews, Paul's anticipating this this line of reasoning, how is it fair that some Jews accept the Messiah, they see him for who he is, and some don't, when he surely is the Messiah for all Jewish people? Well, Paul begins to address this in 5 through 8. He starts by addressing this issue of the whole argument in the first place. Why are you making this kind of argument? It's a natural argument for us to make. How is it fair if this happens because? Because what we do when we start throwing out the how is this fair argument is we're ignoring the root problem. Paul is saying all of us stand condemned because of our sinfulness, and we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to acknowledge our sinfulness. And so what we do is we begin to ask all sorts of interesting theological questions that deflect the attention away from my sinfulness, my need to be forgiven. And we start looking at other people. Well, how is it fair if that happens to them? Or how is it fair if so-and-so is accepted and, and, and their family members aren't? We find this all the way through the Gospels, don't we? When Jesus encounters the woman at the well, he begins to talk to her about sin and the need for salvation, and she immediately starts flitting um, backwards and forwards between different points of conversation. She starts talking about what true worship is and who understands what worship is and so on, and Jesus cuts right through it. She is trying to deflect attention away from the fact that she is a sinner. It happens time and again in the Gospels. And Paul anticipates it here. And the question becomes not really one of fairness, but actually a questioning of sin altogether. If our sinfulness magnifies the glory of God, if God is glorified through my sinfulness, like a diamond is shown to be more glittery and sparkling by being placed on a black cloth rather than on a white one, then is God unjust to judge sinners at all and inflict his wrath upon them? 
Surely if my sin shows up the glory of God more, or the sin of my people shows up the glory of God more, then is it really sin if it reflects the glory of God, if it shows how good and just he is? Is it really something that God is right to judge me for? And all sorts of theological questions begin to sprout out of the situation. No, Paul says, he cuts right through that. We all believe that God is a righteous judge and he will judge the world fairly. He says that in verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? There is an assumption that God is a just judge and he will judge the whole world. And if that is true, then how on earth can we say, if our unrighteousness shows the glory of God and and shows up his justice more favorably, then how can God judge us? This makes no sense. God is not qualified to judge the world if he's not going to judge sin wherever he finds it. We, We can't somehow claim that because we make God look better then therefore he has no right to judge us or our family or other Jews in this case who haven't acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah. God should just let them off with that because they are showing up his glory in his justice. That makes no sense. In fact, it's worse than that. The line of reasoning, if we follow it through, means the greater the sin and the more appalling the sinner, surely the greater God's glory is shown to be in contrast to that. And yet God can't judge because it wouldn't be fair to judge someone who's glorifying him to that degree. It is stupid beyond belief, and Paul punctures it immediately. And then lastly, he points out the biggest flaw in all of this. Why not just do evil that good may come? Why not go on sinning knowing that God will be glorified and that um, we will be safe from his wrath because we're glorifying him? This is the most insidious uh, part of the whole line of reasoning. God can't really judge me for this because I'm showing his glory. And Paul understands his audience very well indeed. When faced with their own sin, Paul knows they would rather pose hypothetical questions than face up to the reality of the fact that they are sinners. Their sin will see them condemned, and they must deal with it. They must. God sent his own son to pay for our sin, to take God's wrath and to leave those who receive Christ as their Savior and Lord clean and holy and perfectly righteous before God. And God desires that his glory be found in saving and sanctifying a sinful people. And he's focused on that for all that he will be glorified in judging and condemning sin and sinners. And if they reject Jesus, as many Jews did, or if they deny that they're sinners in need of a Savior because their sin isn't that bad, or it shows the glory of God, or actually I don't agree that I'm really a sinner at all, then they'll be punished just like everyone else who rejects God flat out of hand. Paul is making sure his hearers cannot get this wrong. (laughs) That they will understand, whether they accept it or not is another issue, but that they will understand their standing before God. That they cannot insert their own standard of justice and righteousness and then try and hold God to their created standard instead of God's standard that he has set for them. And this is why in the opening verses he says that the Jews have had so much advantage and actually that it is 
It's perfectly worthwhile to be a Jew because God has revealed his standard to them in his law and he's shown them what they need to do when they fail to match up to that standard, fail to meet God's requirements. And he's told them that they should go into the world and tell everyone about it, but they don't want God's standard. And again, that's what the Old Testament reveals. The law, the prophets, the writings, the whole thing demonstrates God's people constantly try and twist and morph God's standard, his law, so that they're not accountable to it or that it works for them in their sin rather than against them. How often does it say in Matthew's gospel alone, how often does Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say to you? You have heard people tell you this is what God's law means, but that's not what it means at all. This is what it means. How often does he say things like, you know, you tithe mint and cumin and so on, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You're obsessed over these fastidious little details And yet you're trampling all over the poor and the widow and the foreigner. You're holding them to a ridiculous standard that you yourself can't hold to. And yet you content yourself that you're being obedient to God's law because you're tithing the condiments on your table and giving God a portion. This is nonsense, Jesus says to them. Or you take money from your own family. And you don't look after your own elderly parents because you can make the law sound like it's okay to do that because you're using the money for the Lord's purposes. Jesus says that that's not obeying God's law. That's not what doing, that's not doing what God has said. That's sin. We don't like the idea that God gets to set a standard for our lives. They didn't. In the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, Nobody likes that idea, and it would be better all round if we were just left to our own devices in our view, just to figure out what's best for us. Our entire culture works on this idea, that I set the standard for my own life, and you don't dare tell me that I've got it wrong. Oprah Winfrey just interviewed um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle just the other day, and in her interview, she asked Meghan... How did she feel telling the royal family her truth? As if that's a statement that makes any sense. There has been a rift in the royal family between um, Harry and Meghan and the the rest of the the royal family. And and Meghan had made it clear that she was able to level a few accusations, that she was able to make it clear where they were going wrong. And Oprah asked her, you know, how did you feel speaking your truth to the royal family? When people talk about living or speaking their truth, do you know what they're saying? I mean, it sounds just like a silly sort of kind of modern current cultural thing to say, but it's not. When people say that, whether they realize it or not, they are in effect saying, I am God. What I believe is real, is true. What I say must be. If I think it's true, then it's true. And you must acknowledge that. Now, you can believe the same thing for everything that you say and believe and think and feel, as long as you don't contradict me. But I determine reality. This is the sin of the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. You can determine what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what should be and what should not. This is the most egregious of sins, and yet it affects our whole culture and it affects 
our church. We constantly set a standard for ourselves that we don't hold other that we don't hold ourselves to, but that we then expect other people to hold to. And when they don't, we get all upset. And Paul says, this is not the way things work. You cannot create reality in light of your own experience, in light of your own feelings, in light of the way you think things ought to be. The unthinking arrogance and stupidity of this is breathtaking, and it will lead to the death of a society that that promotes this. The ultimate reality behind all of this is that no man or woman wants God setting the standard. That's really all it boils down to. If there is an ultimate standard, if there is real objective truth that exists in the world, then there must be one who holds us to that standard, the truth teller. And if what he says is true for all people, I must conform my reality to what he has said, and it doesn't matter what I feel about that, what I think about that, it is the simple statement of fact, I must, if I want to stand righteous before this God. And if I don't, then I'll stand condemned before him, and a sinful people just won't have that. If we hold this view, we are making God beholden to us. God can't judge us because we don't think that we sin. And if we're ever willing to admit that we might have done something wrong, that we might have sinned, then God must forgive us. He has no choice in this matter because whether we truly repent of that sin or not, I desire that forgiveness be given me and he must supply it. And that's an end to the, ma- end to the matter. This is my truth. It de-gods God and there is no place for it in the world, but the world is blind and cannot see but there is certainly no place for it in the church. And as we seek to weed this experience out in our hearts, there are a couple of ways that we can identify that it's a problem when we talk about how we feel rather than when we talk about what's true. This is absolutely crucial because although feelings are a part of who we are, and God doesn't deny that we should feel, he doesn't say that we should just be these gray automatons that walk through life never feeling good or bad about anything. That's the reality of Buddhism. That's the hope of Buddhism, isn't it? That you don't feel good or bad, happy or sad about anything, and so you escape the endless cycle of life, which is ultimately meaningless. We don't believe that. God doesn't believe that. Feelings are good, but they cannot determine reality because feelings are also fickle. And if we are feeling aggrieved, if we are feeling hurt and injured by others, then it may be that some, uh, that God's standard of truth has been broken, has been gone against by us or them, and that needs to be addressed. But we cannot base that solely on how we feel. There must be a coming together around God's objective standard. So we can begin to identify in our lives that we are succumbing to this way of thinking, that we set our own standard when we start talking more about feelings than what we know to be true about God's Word. The second way, connected to the first, is that we tend then to diminish the place of God's Word in our lives. We don't want to read what God has surely said, the faith faith once for all delivered to the saints, because really there is no way of getting around this. There is no way of of soft-pedaling what God has said without actually denying it, without denying the truthfulness of it. Yes, God has said, but it's the 21st century. And so we 
we stop applying God's Word to our day because it was written a long time ago to people far away, or it's just a myth. It's just a story given to outline a good morality in life that we should all strive to hold ourselves to. This is nonsense, and it is a sign that we are going in the wrong direction, that we're establishing our standard over and above God's standard. So we can identify it in ourselves as we begin to talk more about feelings than fact about how we feel rather than what we know, and we begin to diminish at the place of God's Word in our midst. We don't read it as much. And when we do, we take it with a pinch of salt because, well, yes, I know it says that, but times have changed and we've moved on. Culture is different. Our understanding is so much better now. And as we begin to identify this, we can begin to deal with it that we must then come in repentance to God and come before His Word and ask that He would reveal the truth to us, even if that means dealing difficultly with us. That's what David was saying in Psalm 51, when the great crushing realization that he was an appalling sinner, he had done egregious things against God's law and against um, um, Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, and the poor child that David had with Bathsheba that died, but most of all, he had sinned against God. And so David repents and comes and sets God's standard over himself once more. We find that we are all on a level playing field. We all are treated to the same, by the same standard before God, regardless of who we are. That God sets that standard. And then in the last half of this section, from 9 through to 20, we find that God's standard reveals that we are all in need of his grace. Paul says, what then, are Jews any better off? No, No, we all stand condemned before God. And then he goes on to outline using a great um, conglomeration of different bits from different books and passages all throughout the Old Testament, Psalms and bits from Ecclesiastes and the prophets and so on. He puts them all together to outline just how sinful we all are, regardless of whether we're a Jew or a Greek, that is, a human being. It doesn't matter who we are or where we're from. None is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. There is nobody who naturally pursues God because we all desire to establish our own standard in our own lives. We are constantly blinkered by our desire for that, to be the God of my own reality. And so no one seeks for God because I'm God in my world. They've all turned aside and together they've become worthless. Now, this isn't Paul being harsh on people and leaving them with poor self-image or anything else. What Paul is saying is that your life was created to glorify God, to worship God, to serve God, and you can't do that if you're walking in opposition to Him because you're not seeking after Him. And seeking after God is the beginning of glorifying Him and worshiping Him. So your life literally has no real meaning or purpose or direction because of that. No one does good. What is good? Worshiping God. But if you're not seeking Him, you don't worship Him. Not one person. And then he goes on to say the consequence of this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Because sin loves company. It's not just misery that loves company. We find that we convince ourselves our throat is Paul's way of talking about what we say. He's going to go on and really ram that home with more imagery about uh, tongues deceiving and the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Everything we say tries to convince us that we really are the God of our world. We constantly defend ourselves, justify ourselves. We constantly seek our own good. And then we try and convince other people that we're right, because if we all agree, then it must be true, mustn't it? And Paul says, this is death. We're convincing ourselves that this is a good thing, and it only leads to death. It is pure poison. And Paul says the impact then is their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. And again, he's saying what happens is as we believe this reality that I am the center of existence and I am the God of my world, as we diminish God's place, we begin to try and convince ourselves and others, and when others don't believe us, when others challenge us, we then turn to violence. I will make you believe me. How dare you tell me that this is not true? That's what we see in our culture today. The silence culture that we have where people are cancelled and not allowed a place in the public square to speak is exactly this being worked out. You are not allowed an opinion, and if you have it, you're certainly not allowed to share it if you disagree with the current way of viewing the world. This is insanity, Paul says. It leads to death. And when people can't deny it, they turn ultimately to violence. And it all boils down to this, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. God isn't before their eyes. They certainly don't fear him. They're not concerned about his standard. They're not concerned about his judgment. They are closing their eyes and shoving their fingers in their ears and shouting constantly to drown out the knowledge they have that they are sinners who stand condemned before a God they'll try desperately to deny even exists. And then he finishes and says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped that the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says, this is what God's word is for. This is why I'm telling you these things, because you've got to know, because God's law tells you, whoever you are, wherever you are, undeniably you are guilty. And as we read it, it makes us offended, because it tells us that we're sinners. But it does more than that it makes us realize that we are desperately in need of the grace of God because there is nothing we can do to stop this. We can't help ourselves. There's no end to our sinfulness. Even when we try so hard, we can't do it. Without thinking, sinfulness just pours out of us because it's part of our heart, and you cannot change your own heart. Someone else has to come and change your heart, and you have to call out for grace and mercy, that the only one who is qualified to do so is God. God uses his law to reveal to you, you are dying. More than that, you are dead. And he alone can do anything to affect that. And so we find that we all stand on a level playing field before God. We all have the same standard that we are held to by God, regardless of who we are or where we're from. And God alone sets that standard for us all. We are not afforded that right. As Christians, we're not better or worse than anybody else. We all stand before God. The question is whether we have availed ourselves of the grace of God or not. And if you are a Christian today, then you have. You confess that when you confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You needed him. You required his grace and his mercy. And you cast yourself upon him and asked for his forgiveness. And so we are redeemed. 
we are set free. And in this alone, we are able to boast in the work of Christ, because this was my life, and he saved me anyway. Glory to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your goodness and for your word. Lord God, we thank you when you have us come to you and ask for forgiveness, when you save us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and you pronounce us righteous. Lord, we have great confidence that we are truly righteous, for you will never obscure or cover over sin. You will deal with it completely and fully, and all our punishment has been placed on Jesus. And Lord God, we thank you that in being a those who have availed ourselves of that grace, we all stand on a level playing field together. None is better than any other, for we were all once sinners and are all now saved by grace. And we thank you that we are able to serve one another and love one another and care for one another in light of that great reality. Lord God, we pray that you would send us out into the world, though, to share with the world this message that they do not set the standard, that they do not have the right, that we truly do have equality before God but it might not be an equality they want to hear about, but they must if they will do something about it and be saved from their sins. Lord God, help us to this end, for it is not easy to stand against the current of our culture, but we must do so. So, Lord, we ask for your strength and your guidance and your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.